This afternoon we confess together the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 60. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them and am still prone always to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed nor had any sins, and I myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, help us to understand the great doctrine of justification as we hear the preaching of your word. Impress upon our hearts that while we are still sinful and weak and wicked, that you've been pleased to impute the righteousness of Christ to us. Help us to glory in that fact of the gospel as we hear this word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The scripture lesson comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Once again, you're hearing from Paul's words to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Hear now God's word. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of God so far. Congregation of Christ and Friends. I'm sure you've heard some of these uh, interviews on radio and TV. People ask, or rather an interviewer asks different people, you know, what are the four Gospels? 
Um, how do you define God? What are the Ten Commandments? And there's some more theologically minded uh, talk shows that have asked people in Christian circles what justification is. And very few people, very few, can define justification, can describe it even in general terms. And so if you have a hard time uh, answering that question yourself, if you're not clear about it, uh, listen carefully to the sermon. We're going to try to be very, very clear about what justification is. But we need to begin with what the covenant of works is. The covenant of works is a covenant God made with Adam as representative of the entire human race. So there was originally a contractual agreement between Adam and the whole human race and God. As Adam obeyed the law of God in the Garden of Eden, so would he earn eternal life for himself and all of mankind. Because he disobeyed the law, he and the entire human race were cursed. So all people are cursed today. All people are sinful because of Adam's choice to sin. As he sinned, all people sinned. So we discussed last week, when he sinned, his sin was imputed, counted, to all people without exception. Christ accepted, of course. So we say the terms of this covenant, the covenant of works, are still in effect for all people. That is, all people today are under God's curse and will die eternally in hell unless God saves them. The only way one can be saved is by taking on the curse of God and doing the law of God perfectly. So if somebody could, today, if they could take on the curse of God and before that uh, do all the law perfectly, they could be saved in and of themselves. But the scriptures say that no person can do this except one. The Lord Jesus Christ, the second and perfect Adam, can fulfill the law perfectly, in fact did, and can take the curse of God on, and in fact he did. As a person places true faith in Jesus, Jesus becomes their substitute, taking on the curse of God and doing the law perfectly in their place. A person placing his or her faith in Jesus to take on the curse and to do the law is what justification is. We'll unravel that a bit. So none of this really makes sense unless we understand that all people are in the covenant of works. Adam's their representative, they're all sin, sinful and cursed, and somebody has to take their place in, order, in, in that covenant to be saved. Now you can find clear definitions of justification in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23, uh, question and answer 60 that we just confessed together. You can also find it in the Belgic Confession, Articles 22 and 23. But here's a very simple definition of justification, which has three elements that anybody can memorize. Here it is. Justification is God's declaration that my sins are forgiven, and that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to me through faith alone. I'll say that again. Justification is God's declaration that my sins are forgiven and that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to me through faith alone. So there are three elements. First, your sins are forgiven in justification. Second, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you in justification. And third, these benefits of the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ is received by faith alone. And that will organize our sermon. So begin with the fact that in justification your sins are forgiven. 
So, the burden of God's law remains, which means that all people are guilty of sin. The expectation is that all people that have ever been born, that will ever live, must do God's law. That remains. That burden remains. So Paul argues this explicitly in Romans chapter 2. All people, that is Jew and Gentile, two broad categories of all people, have the burden of obeying God like Adam did. And that's why the covenant of works is so important. That burden that he had remains. All people must obey God as Adam was supposed to. If one could do the law, potentially, then they'll be justified before God. But it is very clear that no one can do the law of God perfectly. Case in point, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. For as many are as of the works of the law or under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just, just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Because all people have original sin, that is, they've been imputed, credited with Adam's sin, original sin, all people fail to do the law. All are condemned to hell. That's why Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So, all people are sinful, they can do nothing about it of themselves. But, for those who have true faith in Jesus Christ, they are justified. That is, their sins are forgiven. Their sins are washed away. Their sins are not held against them. So Paul continues in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. As Christ hung on the tree of the cross, your sins were not held against you because the wrath of God was taken away, you see. And Paul links this explicitly with justification. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, or still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore... We have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So there you see justification linked with the forgiveness of sins. So as the Old Testament people of God were justified by the blood of Christ to which their sacrifice is pointed forward, so are you justified by the blood of Christ to which you look back on the cross. So first point, let's be clear. In justification your sins are forgiven. Second, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. Usually people get hung up on that term, imputation. By the way, the whole Protestant Reformation was really over this word. The Roman Catholics said, well, we're infused with the righteousness of God or Christ. And Protestants, historic Protestants said, no, we're imputed with the righteousness of Christ. So that term is very important to understand. To impute is to count toward or credit or declare. It's really how, if we want to make um, a good example, how we would regard somebody, uh, say a friend who has sinned against us. Well, so here's the example. Say somebody sins against you, they do something horrible. You know, they're still guilty of the crime, but they say, I'm sorry. 
and you decide to say, you know what, I'm not going to hold your sins against you. In fact, I'm going to consider you now, I'm going to reckon you, reckon you as my good friend again. Even though they're still guilty and they've done all these terrible things, you, you, you credit to them good friendship again. You're going to say, you know, I'm going to consider you to be my good friend once again. Or I will impute the status of friendship, good friendship, to you again. So you decide not to count or impute his sin against him and will rather count or impute to him a friend in good standing, considering him good and loyal again. Another way to think of this, of course, is uh, the scene in the courtroom. If you're standing before the judge, you're guilty, you've done these horrible things, and all of a sudden he slams down his gavel and says, I'm now considering you not guilty. But you say, I am guilty, I did the crime. He says, no, I don't care, I'm going to consider you now not guilty. I'm going to consider this guy's goodness over here imputed to you now. You're a good citizen, go on your way. So if the judge counts you righteous or good, it is so. Slams down the gavel. There's nothing personally that happens inside. It's the judge's declaration that counts. We'll come back to that in a moment. But Paul here in 2 Corinthians 5.21 speaks of double imputation. Your sins are imputed or counted to Christ, and Christ's righteousness is imputed, counted to you through true faith. Paul says, The one not knowing sin was made sin on our behalf, for the purpose that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Double imputation or the great exchange. So the two parts. First, your sin is imputed to Christ. And second, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. (coughs) Excuse me. So first, your sin is imputed to Christ. What does this mean? Well, Christ is not a sinner. Christ was not a sinner. He lived a perfect life. He lived according to the law. He was not sinful. How then, the question is, was Christ made a sinner? Notice, not on account of his sin, he had none, but on account of your sin, of my sin. The one not knowing sin became sin. That is, he was credited with your sin. Therefore, for Christ to be made a sinner is for Christ to be counted a sinner. Your sin is imputed to him. Again, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the first aspect of this double imputation is that your sin is credited to Christ. That's what Paul means by him becoming a curse. He wasn't personally a sinner, but he was counted as a sinner and thus became a curse. So that's the first part. The second part in double imputation is Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. And this is where you fully understand the exchange. So the scriptures, as you've seen, clearly say that all people are sinful. You've broken God's law constantly. How then do you become the righteousness of God? Not on account of your personal righteousness, but on account of Christ's righteousness. But why? Can't you say that the righteousness is that which God puts into you? Isn't it personal righteousness? No, for three reasons. First, Paul is clearly setting up a balance. 
In the same way as your sin is imputed to Christ, so is Christ's righteousness imputed to you. It's a legal relationship. Christ is considered legally a sinner. In exchange, you are legally considered perfectly righteous. Second, notice the kind of righteousness you become. It's a righteousness of God. In other words, not your righteousness, but the righteousness which is from God, as Paul says in Romans 1.17. Third, you become the righteousness of God in Him. That is, you don't become the righteousness of God in yourselves, only in and through what Christ has done, receiving His merits on your behalf through faith in Him, are you counted as righteous. So before we move on to true faith, to make this clear, let's look at the courtroom scene once again. You come before a judge, you've done all these terrible crimes, and not only that, you've never had one good day in your life where you were a good citizen. From day one, you went out and did crimes happily. You didn't do anything for anyone else. So the judge brings you in, you're completely guilty and you know it. And the judge says, bring in this other guy. The other guy comes into the courtroom and the judge says, here's a guy who's never committed any crimes. And not only that, he's been the perfect model citizen. Every day of his life, he's done good stuff. Now, I'm going to consider that guy sinful or guilty of your sins and I'm going to consider his goodness counted toward you. Sands down the gallon and says, get out of here. He said, what? I've never had a good day in my life. I'm sinful all the time. What are you saying? I'm saying to you, sir, you're no longer guilty. You're not, I'm not holding your crimes against you. He's a crime-ridden one now. And not only that, you're, perf- you're a perfect citizen. Get out of here. You're free. Well, that's what happens as you receive Christ or true faith. God the Father says, I know you're bad, and you will continue to be bad, but I'm going to count all your badness to Christ. I'm going to count all of His good law doing and merits to you. But the thing is, and we'll talk about this later, that doesn't make you say, woohoo, now I'm going to go out and do some more crimes. Because God the Father said, I'm cool now. That would be crazy. You wouldn't have true faith. True faith says, Oh, God isn't counting my sins toward me? And I'm righteous as Christ now? I'm going to go out and show the Father how much I love Him for doing this for me. And so third, when we talk about true faith, true faith says that. It doesn't say, Hey, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. It understands, first, the knowledge of salvation... Secondly, it assents to the fact that it is true. And third, there is trust. So faith has three components. First, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for a quick definition. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Grace is the power. Faith is the instrument in salvation. So faith is not an engine. It is something that is an instrument that God gives you as a gift. And once you have it, it has those three components. First, there is knowledge that you understand salvation, you understand justification, you understand what God has done for you. Second, there is assent. You say, I agree to that. I agree that this is the truth. And then there is trust, which is a hearty trust, the Catechism says. That is, you appropriate, by an act of the will, the promises of God in your behalf. 
Knowledge, assent, and trust. That is what true faith is. And that, especially that third part says, you know what? I'm going to live unto God now for what He's done for me. And I believe it is all Christ's work for me and not what I have done. Because we should compare ourselves to the demons. It's not an unfair comparison. In some ways, but in others it isn't. The demons believe. The demons are very orthodox. They understand the Trinity, predestination, justification. They understand everything very well. But they don't at least assent to it. They may assent to it, but they do not trust it. They don't trust God. And the difference is, not only do you know it and assent to it, but you trust in Christ. And so finally, as Pastor Adam mentioned this on his lecture, I think it's very important you understand what the Gospel promises. That is, He will forgive you as you confess sin and believe in Him alone. This is a part of the component of faith, you see. Sometimes you think, I am so lousy. I'm so terrible. I I can't do anything right. I mean, how, how can Christ receive me? Well, here it is simply. In John 6, Jesus says, I will not cast out those that come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And those who come to me I will not cast out, but raise them up on the final day. And so when you're struggling with your faith and you think it sounds too good to be true, you don't look inward and say, I'm going to be really good now. You look to Christ. Flee to Christ. If you're getting nervous about your salvation, if you're finding sin a little bit too attractive, flee to Christ. Go to Him. Confess your sins. As John says in 1 John 8. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. Go there and confess your sins and he will not cast you out. In conclusion, justification is God's declaration that first, your sins are forgiven, second, that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, and third, it is received through faith alone. And brothers and sisters, that is what fuels our worship and our life, that God loves us in this way. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.